Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 51, 50 1. Special number two. Special I don't know. number two. Whatever. It doesn't matter at this point. It's the second to last episode of We Effed Up. I'm Teresa. I'm Cody. And we're, this time, we're not here to bring you all the times in history where people effed up. We're here to bring to you a grand tournament for year two of all of the times in the past year that we've done an episode where somebody effed up, at least one person. Mm-hmm. And we're going to make them fight each other. Fight, fight, fight. That's my the sound of my finger swords. Yeah, she got like two action figures just like just crash against each other against the mic. <laughs> Grab two Gundams up there and just, just crash them against each other. No, they would break. Oh, there you go. Yeah, get your two peacemakers going at it. Just, oh, come on. You, you, man, you did not play with action figures as a kid. Uh, I don't want the sword to fall out and get lost. I clearly just took better care of my action figures. For reference, listeners, Teresa has two uh, Peacemaker action figures. One helmeted, one not. So They're the DC, the DC ones. And I was making them fight, and Cody was criticizing my fighting because I didn't want all of the pieces to get scattered to the t- four winds, which is what will happen, or my dog will eat them. So I was gently making them fight against one another. Gently fighting. Gently that's, fighting. Yeah. So that's uh, our our 24 F-Rappers from year dose of this show. 24 plus, because some of them had two well, F-Rappers. Yeah, so, I think 26 total, but 24 people. Competitors. Yes. yes. Uh, a little bit less than the first year. First year, I think we did 26. Mm-hmm. This year, we did 24. So it's a little, setup's a little different. Still in a bracket tournament style format. Uh, 16 will fight uh, in paired matchups in the first round with eight of them having first round buys uh, seated completely at random. Uh, but I think the first round buys, I think they're all pretty much heavy hitters uh, for, for the most part. There's a couple in there that are a little, little lightweight. but Heavy hitters. But, uh, I think the matchups will do well. I'm so, just going to do my best John Madden the entire time. Boom! I'm actually drawing circles around things a lot oh, and yeah. X's. And See, then... what you need to do, you, you, the, the, the linemen need, you need to block this way, and then you need to come up in this way. Clearly, this show has gone off the rails. This show's uh, never been on the rails. <laughs> towards the end of its life, and yep. we have gone completely crazy. Well, you were already <laughs> there. But anyway, let's get down to it. Our first matchup, Deng Xiaoping versus Stuart Gibson. Deng Xiaoping, the paramount leader of China from 1978 to 1989, regarded as the architect of modern China through his sweeping economic reforms, he was the ultimate executor of the one-child policy, which resulted in over 400 million not-born kids and the increasing gender disparity and also China's current and projected population decline. So... A lot of a lot of people not born because of Deng Xiaoping. Yeah, and the the effects aren't really fully felt yet. Uh, right, a lot of it's projected to be into the future, but China's into already starting to feel those pressures now. Into the future, yeah, okay. Because they've discarded the one-child policy completely. Right. Now they're just like, please have children. Please, please. we order you to have children. Oh boy, yeah. that, that only thing worse than ordering people not to have children would be ordering people to have children. Yes, yes. All right. So what about Stuart Gibson? Uh, Stuart Gibson was the operations officer in the U.S. Navy in the Philippines who did not declare the torpedoed USS Indianapolis overdue, 
leading to several days of the survivors being stranded in shark-infested waters. Easy peasy. It's sting shopping. Yeah, uh, while Stuart Gibson's actions were, lack of action was, you know, pretty, pretty brutal for the survivors of that ship, it didn't affect an entire country's trajectory decades into the future. Uh, so Deng Xiaoping, he's our, he's our effort effort of yes. that bracket. Absolutely. All right, our, our next matchup is Robert Stockton versus Gunter Schabowski. Uh, Robert Stockton was the captain of the USS Princeton whose peacemaker gun exploded during a demonstration and that killed the secretaries of state and the Navy and the death of the secretary of state, Abel Upshur threw a wrench into the Texas annexation negotiations leading to the issue becoming embroiled in the slavery dispute and the deciding factor in the 1844 election. Uh, Gunter Schabowski, he was the East German communist party official whose miscommunication about migration status, caused a flood of East Berliners to overwhelm the border checkpoints and ultimately led to the fall of the Berlin Wall. So he just, they had a press conference and he was like, someone asked him like, well, when, when, when can people start you know, going over to West Berlin? He's like, well, as far as I know, immediately. And well, the flood of people, too many people for the border guards to stop. People just start hacking at the wall. It comes down, and yeah, one of the most iconic moments at the end of the Cold War. I'm going to say Gunter Schabowski, because while the 1844 election was important and the Texas annexation was obviously important for America, I think that the fall of the Berlin Wall had bigger overarching uh, effects for the rest of the world and also communism in Germany in general and Europe and Russia. So I'm going to say Gunter Schabowski. I would agree with that. Uh, the, the Robert Stockton one, it was almost like comical. It was one of those ones where it's like, yeah, people died, but it was also just like kind of comical, like how inept it was. <laughs> and Gunter's was also kind of comical in a way, but yeah, it had a much larger impact. And I mean, fall of the Berlin Wall, it's one of the most iconic moments of the 20th century really emblematic at the end of the Cold War. So yeah, I would agree. Uh, Gunter Schabowski moves on. Okay, next up we have Violet Ferguson and Emperor Honorius. So Violet Ferguson was a passenger on the SS Automedon whose insistence on the, her German captors retrieving her tea set led to the discovery of vital intelligence that eased the Japanese conquest of several British outposts in the Pacific. She really needed that tea set. Yeah, that was the <laughs> that was the one where he really kind of went off the rails about like what kind of oh person she was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think we decided that uh Violet Ferguson was just one of those people, well well you you need to retrieve my tea set, Captain. <laughs> Captain John. Emperor Honorius, the Western Roman Emperor from three ninety three to four twenty three. Uh refusal to treat with the Visigoths and his overall ineptitude led to the sacking of Rome in four ten. Uh he was the one who Supposedly, legend has it, when Rome fell, uh, the his courtiers came in to tell him, hey, Sire, Rome has fallen. But he was like, but I saw, like, he thought it was like, right. you're talking about one he of his chickens. chickens yeah. They're like, no, sir, the city's like, oh, well, that's fine then. Uh, it's easy, it's, like, on the one hand, obviously, I'm going to say Emperor Honorius. Um, I feel like emperors are going to be 
over they're they're going to get through multiple rounds of a tournament like this pretty easily because although Violet Ferguson and she insisted on them getting her tea set and then they found all of the intelligence we can't really know for certain that it's that intelligence that mm. was like crucial to mm. Japan losing World War II while I mean, on the other hand Emperor Honorius like clearly was presiding well, over even, even like Britain losing its outposts in the Pacific because that, that, that's what the intelligence was it was like British like war plans in the Pacific and like oh defenses. right okay well then yeah, yeah the, the Japan like it made it easier for Japan to conquer those places yeah well still Emperor Honorius I am gonna say with Violet Ferguson okay. because at this time in Roman history the emperors were they weren't fully puppet emperors yet, but they were also just like kind of used by other courtiers to kind of exercise power. Like a uh, Stilicho at the time was kind of the power behind the throne of Honorius, mm -hmm. and Rome was pretty well on the like headed towards the decline at this stage. Uh, it wasn't fully there yet. But I, I don't know if, like, I I don't think it, well, well, I'm not talking about the actual fall of the Empire, though. I'm talking about the sacking of Rome. Yeah, I'll go, yeah, I'll change my, yeah, I'll go with Honorius. Okay. Because it is, like, the sacking of Rome. Cody it's... talked himself out of having to flip a coin, so. Yes. All right. So Emperor Honorius is our winner there. Yes. Uh, the next pairing is Richard Pratt and Vlad Dracula. Vlad Dracula! Richard Pratt was the U.S. Army official who found... Oh, sorry, U.S. Army officer who founded the Carlisle Industrial School, which was the first of many Native American boarding schools. And the purpose of the school was to, quote, save the man, kill the Indian, essentially annihilating Native cultures through forced cultural assimilation. And Vlad Dracula was the ruler of Wallachia on three separate occasions from 1448 to 1477. Vicious tyrant, whose preferred method of punishment was impalement. Uh, the failure to identify the correct tent during the night attack at Targoviste uh, was a missed opportunity to kill his opponent, the Ottoman Sultan Mehmet the Conqueror. Uh, I'm going to go Richard Pratt in this pair up um, because Dracula, he ended up being successful, although this did lead kind of to his uh, his eventual downfall. He was actually successful after this still. Uh, he still had 60 miles of impaled people um, that the the Sultan had to, Mehmet the Con Conqueror had to walk through. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to say Richard Pratt. Uh, I agree. Uh, well, I'll... Vlad's deeds were uh, not great. Uh, the that was really like his opportunity to kill the Sultan, and even then, it's like, mm, would he still have been able to? Right. I mean, he's a Sultan. He's not gonna. Not, he's not gonna have guards. Um. And Richard Pratt, like the damage that his ideas, because you know, founded the first it uh of these boarding schools. Certainly not the last. And the the lasting pain that his practices caused through, like, for well over a century, greatly affected Native American tribes to this day. So, yeah, I'm going to agree with Pratt. All right. Richard Pratt, the 
Yeah, Richard Pratt moves on. So the next matchup is Joseph McCarthy and Steve Ross. Um, Joseph McCarthy being the U.S. Senator from Wisconsin from 1947 to 1957. And, <coughs> and he made up the list of the supposed communist infiltrators in the United States government and also sparked the second Red Scare in the 50s. Steve Ross, one of our favorite subcategories of F-Rappers, corporate executive, who rushed development of the video game adaptation of E.T. the Extraterrestrial, leading to the collapse of Atari and the video game industry as a whole in the early 1980s. Uh, I'm going to go with McCarthy in this regard. Yeah, it's a pretty pretty easy one. Uh, the damage that he did, I mean, had such lasting influence. I mean, it. you have the second Red Scare, the subset of that, the Lavender Scare against uh, homosexuals in the government. Whereas Steve Ross is like, yeah, corporate executives are gen- you know, usually uh, jerks. Ter- yeah, generally terrible. And we don't like, we he, don't like them. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, and his decision to do that, I mean, it affected a, a, an industry that eventually recovered. McCarthy, In a big, like big McCarthyism way. is still a byword to this day. It has entered the lexicon of, uh, uh, of you know, of our of our language. So, yeah, I, I agree. McCarthy, uh, he's got to he got he's got to be the one to move on. So, yeah. And the next matchup: Robert E. Lee and Anthony Eden. Robert E. Lee. Uh, being the Confederate general who bore ultimate responsibility for the intelligence snafu around Special Order 191 in 1862, and that led to the Union victory at the Battle of Antietam. Yeah, that was our special mystery episode where you picked uh, Lee as the ultimate F-Rupper from your three choices. Anthony Eden was the UK Prime Minister from 1955 to 1957, his belligerent and colonialist attitude towards Gamal Abdel Nasser's Egypt led to the Suez Crisis. Boy, wow, my voice just broke there. Yeah. And the end of Great Britain as a perceived world power. Hmm. Yeah, th- this one's a little more difficult. Because with Lee and the discovery of Special Order 191, that Lee, like helps the Union victory at Antietam, which... Eventually, you know, prompted Abraham Lincoln to issue the Emancipation Proclamation because he needed a victory to do that. Otherwise, it would seem desperate. And this was still a time when Britain was thinking about trying to intervene from a not from a military standpoint, from a diplomatic standpoint, because by you know by this point the war is not going well for the Union. So a loss at Antietam probably would have put the nail in the coffin for the Union. And the loss of that you know, greatly affects you know, greatly affects the American Civil War as a whole. Whereas Eden, yeah, the Suez Crisis—that's like you know Britain's last gasp as a world power. It's basically bullied into giving up. Um, essentially so, trying to enforce its colonial, uh, its imperial uh, power. So, so here's the way that I think about it, though. And obviously this evolves like during us doing this and it did last time too. But I try to think about what actually happened versus what could have happened. Mm. So even though Robert E. Lee ultimately 
what you know was the his indiscretion with special order 191 ended up leading to that union victory at the battle of antietam and we can we can suppose that that would have been the end of the union we can't say that for sure but in the other case anthony eden did actually lead to the suez crisis and did actually lead to great britain becoming um you know losing their their kind of imperialist uh or colonialist status. So I'm going to say Anthony Eden in this case. Not that Robert E. Lee isn't a giant shitbag, because he absolutely is, but this is not who is the bigger shitbag. It is who is the bigger effer-upper. Yes. And in this case, because we can directly tie Anthony Eden's action um, and, you know, being a racist uh, <laughs> against Nasser uh, to kind of the fallout of that, I'm going to say Eden. I completely agree. Uh, I, I really couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, Eden was really like the last of these, you know, the last of these prime ministers who tried to hold on to the British Empire, and it failed miserably. Uh, anyway, so our next matchup, da, 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 Empress Dowager Sishi versus Khalif al-Mustasim. All right, so Empress Dowager Cixi effectively ruled the King uh, King China from 1861 to 1908. Uh, Her refusal to permit reform, specifically during the Hundred Days Reform, irreparably led to the fall of the monarchy in 1912. And then Caliph al-Musasim was the Abbasid Caliph from 1242 to 1258. His refusal to to submit to the as-yet-undefeated Mongol horde led to the destruction of Baghdad, which was one of the greatest cities in the world at the time, his own death, and the end of the Islamic Golden Age. Uh, I'm going to say Caliph al-Mustasim in this, in this case. Um, Baghdad and the area was considered to be like one of the most amazing places on Earth. It was super technologically advanced for the time mm-hmm. in terms of architecture, mathematics. Great, great houses of learning. Literature, um, recorded literature at the time. Um, not to say that the you know the fall of the monarchy in China is not as, um, not as much of an impact because I do think that Empress Dowager Cixi was like, kind of a bad ruler and a and like didn't affect as much as she should have like didn't do as much as she should have but i think that the destruction of baghdad essentially was like the end the end of a lot of um progress in the area yeah uh i i agree China was already well on the way to decline by the time Cixi came into power in the 1860s. Uh, it was already starting to get carved up into spheres of influence or even losing territory, like, for example, Hong Kong to the British. Uh, so uh, she, she may have exacerbated the problem, but I feel it was going to head in that direction regardless. Uh, the Caliph, sure, like, he could submit to Mongol rule. The Mongols, as long as you paid them lip service or tribute or whatever, they kind of left you alone in terms of religion. Mm-hmm. So he still would have carried on, you know, it's not like, you know, convert, it's, 
It's not one of these convert or die situations. Convert or die. Baghdad still could have continued on. It would have been a li- probably a little different. But it I mean it, it still would have been able to be the center of learning and scholarship and you know as a historian it, it always pains me whenever libraries get burned. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so and it was really just obstinacy that led that uh the, was the reason behind his refusal to do so. So yeah, so the caliph, yeah, I would say he he advances. So all right. Next next matchup, Harry Frazee and Thomas Fitzstephen. Uh Harry Frazee was the produ- producer? He was a theater producer. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's right. A theater producer and owner of the Boston Red Sox who traded Babe Ruth to the Yankees, leading to the creation of one of the most dominant dynasties in sports and the infamous and totally real curse of the Bambino. I just totally rolled my eyes while I read that. <laughs> I don't know why. I have no idea. Thomas Fitzstephen was the captain of the white ship. Uh, his drunken boasting of his ship's capabilities led to its sinking in 1120, shortly after leaving port, and the death of the heir to the English throne, William Adelin, and set the stage for the 20-year-long civil war that was the anarchy. Uh, I'm going to say Thomas Fitzstephen in this case. Yeah, I mean, as much as my my sports brain wants to say Harry Frazee because he initially, he was really responsible for one of those legendary sports curses uh, ever, the curse of the Bambino, the Red Sox 86-year championship drought that was completely real. Don't shake your head at me. Sports curses are real, people. Uh-huh. Beware of them. Why don't you do a podcast about sports curses? Maybe I will. Uh, great. Good for you. Hmm. And you won't be on it since you since you think it's all BS. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh-huh. But yeah, Thomas Fitzstephen, I mean, his uh, he didn't need to do that. He could have just sailed the ship normally. And they left in the ev- in the evening after they've been drinking all day. I mean, th- this is I mean a DUI captain essentially, and this really foils uh, Henry the First's plans because then he has to uh, name his daughter his the sole remaining legitimate child. His <laughs> daughter is heir because mm-hmm. he had twenty four odd illegitimate children. Couldn't have any of them, and that and and you know the nobles were like, oh no. We can't have a woman rule us. Not a woman. Heaven forbid. With her mood swings and... Menstruations. Yes, and hysteria. Can't be, can't be doing that. So so it just led to, like, just a snowball effect. <coughs> and if, like, you know, you just just act normally. Drive your ship sober. <laughs> it would have been fine. I'm pretty sure people were sailing drunk all over the place back then. Yeah, that's true. But... I was going to say, like, it's relative sober, you mean? Yes, relative sober. <laughs> Instead of drinking their light beer yes. or whatever. What is it called? Table beer? That's like beer that was like 3%, right? That they just drank like water. It even qualifies beer. Yeah. yeah. If it has hops and um, is fermented. So, yeah, okay. our first round is complete. Second round first match yep. jerry brimmer and reagan versus, versus ding xiaoping wait what oh because of the bye okay yeah all right let me look back here 
Jerry Bramer versus Deng Xiaoping. Okay, so as a reminder, uh, Jerry Bramer was the head of the American occupation of Iraq after the overthrow of Saddam Hussein in 2003. Um, he disbanded the Iraqi armed forces and led to thousands of armed men becoming unemployed, leading to uh, their radicalization and the instability that uh, Iraq still suffers from this day. It says track. <laughs> yeah, I realize that. I typo. At first, I was like, shack? <laughs> Track? No, the instability that Iraq still suffers from today. So, <coughs> head of the American occupation of Iraq and, you know, partially, if not totally responsible for radicalization of the former Iraqi armed forces versus Deng Xiaoping, the... Um, the leader of China. Yeah, the leader of China and the executor of the one-child policy. Um. So, in this case, I am going to actually say Jerry Bramer um, because the, although Iraq wasn't exactly like 100% stable during the destruction of Saddam Hussein's regime in 2003, I mean, they had had problems for a long time before that. Um, this definitely threw a grenade into an already very delicate and um, shitty situation. Mm. For Iraq and for the Middle East in general, um, I do think that Deng Xiaoping's actions uh, and, like, you know, the not being born 400 million Chinese people is bad. Uh, I definitely think this is worse um, because it's not like he killed 400 yeah. million people. He just made it so, uh, and like. Not to say he didn't kill any people indirectly because there definitely were deaths and abortions and. Uh, oh, yeah. all that kind yeah. of stuff that happened. But I think that um, kind of removing employment from a whole, an entire army's worth of people. And Iraq was like, at one point it was one of the largest militaries on the planet. Yeah. <clears throat> and also considering the fact that this is a country that we kind of uh, overthrew the regime as a fu as a consequence <laughs> to 911 even though it didn't directly have yeah, anything to, do with, to it, do with it yeah it was still a consequence of that yes. and that is shitty so that's yeah. why i'm going to say jerry bramer in this case i'm actually going to agree because ding china if, like at the time it was believed that china was overpopulated and was going to just it was the problem was just going to get worse and he did what he felt was like, okay, maybe this will work. It ended up not working in the long run. In the short run, it sort of worked. But in the long run, yeah, not really. Whereas Jerry Brimmer, it's just a, a decision that was not thought out. Like even, even the U.S., like the top brass U.S. military were kind of taken by surprise with it. Because they intended to use it, use the Iraqi military, okay, we're going to use them to rebuild the country. Mm -hmm. Basically turn them all into construction brigade, brigades mm -hmm. <laughs> and engineer brigades. Yeah. And it's just like, it's very emblematic of these people who were the decision makers in the Bush administration thinking that they knew best. Mm -hmm. That, oh, I'm this, you know, Ivy League, Harvard, Yale, whatever, educated you know, neocon who's a, who, like, I know what's best. Like a very paternalistic attitude 
that was just utterly not what the world or the world in general and America needed at the time. Yeah. And these just unilateral decisions to just, all right, we're going to disband the military because that sounds like it, the right thing to do. We just beat them. Why do they need the military? That's that, that sounds good. You know, um, well, they can't have a military because then they'll fight. Yeah. And it's like, it, it and it's just all these other decisions. It's just, it's not thought out at all. And so, yeah, I, I got to go with Jerry Bremer. Of course, Jerry Bremer, of course, to this day thinks, well, I didn't do anything wrong. Well, you did, buddy. Look at Iraq <laughs> now. Right. Exactly. I think that's why I think that's why I have an easy time saying Jerry Bremer. Yeah. So the next matchup, Gunter Schabowski versus the old Gipper himself, Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, the infamous U.S. president from 81 to 89, uh, he was presented with the chance for complete nuclear disarmament at the Reykjavik summit in 1986 and refused in order to keep his still hypothetical magic space lasers. Ah, mm-hmm. uh, shit, man, this is hard. Um, Gunter leading his, his, uh, action or, uh, stupid misstep leading to the fall of the Berlin wall versus Reagan, um, passing up a chance for total nuclear disarmament. Um, and then when I say it like that, it is obvious that it is Ronald Reagan. Yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of my slam dunk. Like, yeah, <coughs> Gunter misspoke, but I mean, the Berlin Wall was gonna fall anyway. Right, it was already on its way. Yeah. When Reagan refuses this, the U.S. and the Soviet Union, like like that, they're at their peak in terms of total number of nuclear weapons they have. Right. There's no guarantee it's going to decline. Granted, it does decline greatly after the after this because they do eventually agree to you know several disarmament treaties, but it, it's just the 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 sheer hubris of thinking like, well, we don't need to completely disarm because I'm because we're gonna have these space lasers in a few years and which he already knew was unlikely. Yeah, that it was gonna take a really long time. Yeah, he was gonna be out of office by that point. Right. So it, it, it's like it. Passing up that chance is just unforgivable. Yeah. It is such a colossal mistake. So, yeah, Ronald Reagan. And having, I mean, having said that, like, just because he and they promised for nuclear disarmament at that point doesn't necessarily mean that it would have been perfect and that there could have been countries that held out and all that stuff. Maybe it creates tensions later. But... I like to think about what actually happened and passing that up, passing up complete nuclear disarmament, removing the threat of mutually assured destruction was such an idiotic move. Yep. It's just so stupid. Yeah. So next up, Pope Stephen VI versus Emperor Honorius. All right. So Pope Stephen VI... Uh, he served as Pope from 896 to 897, convened the Cadaver Synod, where he had his predecessor, Pope Formosus, exhumed and put on trial on various charges, and the that macabre display greatly damaged the legitimacy of the Roman Catholic Church, leading into the pornocracy. Um, so, Pope Stephen VI versus Emperor Honorius. I'm going to continue with my choice at, of Emperor Honorius. 
Yeah, uh, Steve and the Six Bush is also our only episode where we had a guest. That, Thank you, uh, Bree. Bree from Pontifax is on there to give us her Pope knowledge. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it, it it's... She gave us her Pontifax? Yes. Womp womp. Yes. <laughs> um, you get a foot kick for that. Um, <laughs> Was see, that like a fist bump? Sure. Only um, uh, because we have several microphones in front of us. We foot bump. Uh, Stephen the Sixth. Yeah, it, it, it's a weird little episode in the history of the papacy. But in terms of F-ups, yeah, I'd go with Honorius. I mean, Cause, I mean it, it led d- to the destruction of Rome. It didn't, uh, didn't totally ruin the Roman Catholic Church, considering it still is a giant yeah, superpower on. in religion. Granted, it had a, you know, some ups and downs, but I mean, it's still around. Yeah. Still got popes. Still got a Catholic church. Yep. And we don't have a Roman Empire. Aww. Sad. So yeah, so Honorius moves on. Uh, next up, Richard Pratt <laughs> versus John Green. John Green was the spe- <laughs> the spectator who exacerbated the malice of the palace fight in 2004 between the Indiana Pacers and the Detroit Pistons, leading to the suspensions of several players. Who's he against? Hmm? Richard Pratt? Richard Pratt, yeah. Ah, all right. It's going to be Richard Pratt. Yeah, John Green. Like, it, it was it was a fun episode. It was our last effort where we covered. I mean, it was the previous episode of this one. Our last effort where we covered. Kind of lighthearted. I mean, yeah. Players lost some money, some suspensions. People's lives were altered. But nobody died. Is your next podcast just going to be you yelling about sports stuff? There's plenty of those out there already. I don't need to add to it. Are you sure? I'm quite sure. But do you want to? (laughs) Needing and wanting are two two different things. No comment. Okay, so that was that one was easy. Yeah. Um. Next matchup. King Louis the Sixteenth versus Joseph McCarthy. King Louis the Sixteenth versus Joseph McCarthy. Dang, that's. Hell of a mashup. Um, well, yeah, you, you, you get further in the rounds. They're going to get harder to decide between them. <clears throat> king Louis the Sixteenth was the king of France from 1774 to 1792. His decision to flee Paris to help lead the counter-revolutionary forces against the nascent French Revolution led to the abolition of the monarchy, the execution of Louis, and the descent of France into the reign of terror, um, and the execution of his wife. Didn't mention, didn't mention Marie Antoinette. It led to a lot of executions. There were so many heads that got chopped off. It was a freaking disaster. Yeah. Who who was that against? Louis the Sixteenth. Louis the Sixteenth against. Yep. Louis XVI. Against. Uh, Joseph McCarthy. Oh shit. <laughs> Louis the Sixteenth. This is big big deal. <laughs> big big deal. <laughs> I mean, McCarthyism. Is still something that happens today. Like communism is still a bad word in America, mm. but the French Revolution was was way bigger. I think than yeah, McCarthyism. I mean, Louis. I mean, this particular f up didn't lead directly to the revolution, but this definitely steered it into a direction it should not have gone. Yeah, like if he had been more cooperative, if he had just been like, okay, you know, a little more diplomatic 
Yeah. He might have kept his throne and kept his head, but bolt uh, bolting in the night doesn't really work out too well. Bolting <laughs> in the night and then like making it rain at all yeah. of the villages. Yeah. Like, oh, here's a silver platter. Oh, here's my 50 carriages. Yeah, my like, huge massive here's a here's a here's a uh some currency with my face on it. Uh not disguising himself very well. Yeah, uh, which yeah, uh, which shows like how stupid these monarchs were. Yeah. So And McCarthy I feel like <coughs> he was essentially the right person at the right time for that climate. Yeah. Or maybe the wrong person at the wrong time for that climate. It could have easily been somebody else. It could have been Richard Nixon. For I mean, <laughs> Richard Nixon was initially a big supporter of McCarthy. Yeah. You know, uh, so I feel like that may have just been inevitable that somebody rose or lowered themselves to that moment to be that figure. So, you know, we may not be talking about McCarthyism. We may be talking about like, you know, Jonesism or Smithism or whatever right. you want to say. Louis, like he made that decision to flee. So yeah, I'm gonna agree that it is Louis XVI in this instance. Uh, the next matchup: Anthony Eden versus Rob Hall and Scott Fisher tag uh, team. So Rob Hall and Scott Fisher were the leaders of the expedition to Mount Everest in 1996 that resulted in the deaths of eight people and led to reforms in the Everest business. Um, this one's easy. It's Anthony Eden. Don't even have to think about it. Uh, the, obviously the, um, deaths on Everest in 1996 sucked and they were widely publicized because there was a movie being made at the same time that a lot of people watched yeah. because it was an IMAX movie. Um, but Anthony Eden effed up bit real big. Yeah. And that's definitely, it, as the rounds go on, it's harder for the, uh, I hesitate to use this, but small scale f ups to really to, to really move on, uh, like like these f rappers who like whose decisions affect the course of whole countries and whole nations, whole gr- like large groups of people. It's kind of hard for the pe- for the ones who f whose f ups like don't drastically hurt anybody or only hurt a few people. It's hard for them to move on. Right. So yeah, I agree, Anthony Eden. Uh, he moves on. So next up, this one's going to be so this will be a tough one. Charles Trevelyan versus Khalif Al-Mustasim. Charles Trevelyan was the point man for the government response, or lack thereof, to the Irish potato famine in the 1840s and 50s. Bigoted, colonialist, and exploitative attitude toward the Irish poor led to British government effectively doing nothing during the famine, or even making it worse, leading to the Irish diaspora and the near extinction of the Irish language. Destruction of Baghdad, end of the Islamic Golden Age, versus the guy who uh, led the response to the potato famine. It's going to be the caliph. Really? Um... Yeah, I mean, the Irish potato famine is terrible. Uh, I am partially, I mean, me being here in the United States is partially responsible um, due to his, or partially, he is partially responsible for me being here. Um, My Irish ancestors came here uh, both because of that and later because of um, religious persecution. But I'm going to say Caliph. 
Khalif album as to Sim for this one. This one's tough for me as well. Because, uh, yeah, the Khalif could have just, just submitted the Mongols. And Baghdad could have continued being the center of learning and scholarship. Charles Trevelyan. I, I'm reminded of a quote. I think we said it during the episode. I can't remember who said it exactly. Uh, God brought the blight, but the English brought the famine. And he was the person advising or advising and forming government policy on how to respond to the famine, which was essentially, well, we can't bear the government spending a penny to save these people. These have to come from either charitable donations or they have to work for their food or, or it's just this horrible horrible response like bigoted response uh i mean he said several instances where like you know well these lazy irish just need to work or they're just too stupid to manage their own crops oh god yeah it is tough I, I'm, I'm i'm having difficulty with this one i'm gonna say charles trevelyan all right so <clears throat> we need a coin Oh, you, you, you have procured a coin. So you want to call it in the air? Well, I, want, I want to make sure this coin is legit first. You know, I want to make sure there's no like, weights on it or anything. There's you know, no okay. weights uh, on it. I just sure. grabbed it off my entertainment just, center. That's uh, so what you say. Do you want to call it in the air? Heads. All right, the Caliph moves on. All right. This round, Thomas Fitzstephen versus Mark Sykes and Francois-Georges Picot. So Mark Sykes and Francois-Georges Picot were the British and French negotiators who determined the division of the Ottoman Empire's Middle East territories during World War I, leading to the makeup of the modern Middle East and the source for many of its conflicts versus Thomas Fitzstephen. No. Yes. Yeah? Oh. Uh, Mark Sykes and Francois-Georges Picot. Um, Easy. That's a slam dunk. Uh, Especially considering what's happening in the world right now. It was pretty awful, and they were totally inept and completely stupid. So, <laughs> totally inept and completely stupid. That could be the name th- of my autobiography. <laughs> womp womp. Well, no, I. I <laughs> yes. mean, if, if you want to go with that, sure. I was gonna say, uh, totally inept and completely stupid is the could be a like a, a series on all these uh, colonial f ups, uh, colonial screwballs, you know, because uh, a lot of them were just utterly. Just bafflingly stupid. Next next podcast idea? No. Just... <laughs> All right, who's next? Now we're going back through again, right? That's the end of round two? Yes. All right. So. The round next three. Ma- next matchup. The Fight. Elite, the Elite Eight. Elite Eight. Okay. That's what they call it in college basketball. Sure. Jerry Brimmer versus Ronald Reagan. Oh, God. All right, so Jerry Brimmer was the... God, of course... Two <laughs> American politicians. Uh, so Jerry Bramer was the head of the American occupation when they overthrew Saddam Hussein. And Ronald Reagan, in this specific F up from Ronald Reagan and what we're judging him on, was the nuclear disarmament um, at the Reykjavik summit. So, damn, this one's tough. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say Reagan. 
Because if Reagan had agreed to nuclear disarmament, then potentially the actions of Jerry Bramer would never have come to fruition. Because there would never have been a search for weapons of mass destruction. Oh, yeah. Potentially. Like, one of the biggest uh, boogeyman instances, which I think we, we may discuss it in our recording later tonight in the 90s, was that Saddam was going to get a bomb. Yeah. Um, or already had one. He already had one. So there's no nuclear arms. Does that fear exist? So and it's just the scale of it. Nuclear disarmament was on the table. And it's like, all he had to do was say yes. Yeah. All he had to do was say yes. He had two options, and he picked the wrong one. And I'm going to go, yeah, I'm going to agree with uh, you on that one. It is Ronald Reagan. I mean, really, we could have just done this whole year two, 24 episodes. Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan. Just put him. And this just be just a, bra- a Reagan bracket. <laughs> put him against one himself. Yes. Huh. Yep. Ugh. Yeah. Yikes. So How Reagan. does that feel, Reagan? <laughs> to to be already determined as the <laughs> somebody who could have had an entire bracket to himself. Well. Oh God! Please, please don't. <laughs> no, I'm not going to. I can't do a Reagan impression beyond well. Uh, so, so next up, Honorius Emperor Honorius versus Richard Pratt. So Honorius. The sacking of Rome in 410, Richard Pratt, the army officer um, who created the Native American boarding schools. Uh, Shit. I'm going to say Richard Pratt. I'm going to advance Richard Pratt over Honorius because it's really easy to just kind of bump an emperor up. In fact, I think our year one effer upper, like Grand Poobah was an emperor. Um, <laughs> Grand Fubar. Grand Fubar. a water buffalo launch. Um, but he, he was the, he was, it, it's easy to bump an emperor up because it seems like in order of magnitude, their FFs are bigger. But Rome got sacked, and like you mentioned before, um, we, you know, it was already on the kind of the downward spiral. It would I get th- sacked again. I thought, I thought the Emperor Honorius lost the last matchup. No, he went up against the Pope. Against oh, Stevenson. right, right, right. Okay, yeah. Okay. Never mind. So, yeah. Um, Rome was already on its way down. It was sacked again. He was obviously emperor for another 13 years after the sacking in 410. So uh, he didn't F up so bad that they killed him. Um, and Richard Pratt was like, I mean, he was responsible for destroying multiple cultures and uh, multiple tribes worth of influence. So I'm going to say Richard Pratt. I agree. Uh, yeah. Honorius horribly inept how he uh, how he lasted on the throne that long i really don't know because his is like one of the longest reigns of any roman emperor for like 30 years and it's just like how probably because they were like he doesn't matter yeah this is really when the imperial uh office really loses a lot of its power and prestige and after this it really starts being held by puppet emperors who really don't have control over anything he had control over his chickens okay it's true his precious chickens 
little chickens. Yep. Uh, and Pratt, it's just the lives destroyed. The culture's destroyed. Uh, it, it has to be Pratt. Yeah. So. I agree. So Pratt moves on to the final four. Next up, uh, King Louis XVI versus Anthony Eden. All right. The so Earl of Avon. King Louis the Sixteenth uh, was the king who, um, essentially, the reign of terror. It descended into the reign of terror after he tried to flee France, and then Eden was the UK Prime Minister from fifty-five to fifty-seven. Um, who Su- Suez Crisis? Right, Suez Crisis. Um, I'm gonna say Louis the Sixteenth again. Gonna pass him through. Uh, the French Revolution was really bad for France. Uh, yes, it was. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm gonna agree with you, uh, Louis. Again, Eden, Britain was. Uh, it was already kind of done as a world power by this point. It just hadn't realized it yet. Yeah, the British hadn't realized it yet. Yeah. They didn't want it to be true. So it was always going to turn out in the way, like, even if the Suez Crisis had never happened, even if they had just kind of let the Suez Canal go, Britain was still on the decline. It was still going to lose its empire. This just really put the nail in the coffin and made everybody know it. Yeah. Louis fleeing, again, like, if he had just stayed, if he cooperated, if he had been more diplomatic... Because he was going to, he he bolted in the night to go meet up with loyal troops to put down the rebe- to put down the revolution. Yeah. So yeah, I I agree with you, Louis. It's got to be Louis. Got to be Louis. Got to be Louis. So next up, uh, Khalif Al Mustasim versus Mark Sykes and Francois George Picot. Sort of kind of like you know same general area in the Middle East. I'm going to say Mark Sykes and Francois-Georges Picot. Mm. Um, so while I do think that the destruction of Baghdad um, and the end of the Islamic Golden Age is terrible, I think that we're just starting to see the effects of the um, division of the Ottoman Empire. Um, well, that we're, we're starting to see some of the more terrible effects of it, mm. but that it has been all bad all the way down. Um, and potentially this is because we can see this closer in our rear view mirror. Um, and we can also see the effects more intensely because it's only been, it's been less than a hundred years or a little bit more than a hundred years, I guess, but just a little bit more than that. Yeah. Um, versus the, um, destruction of Baghdad, there have been nearly a thousand years since then and now, and, we can see that there there have also been times when things were good again and they were able to rebuild in that area. Um, maybe it was never as great as it once was, but in this particular case, we have not hit the uh, singularity where we can say, like, okay, it's going to get better. Um, it's only gotten worse in the Middle East. So, yeah. um, I agree. Uh, the Caliph... I mean, the Mongols, they were unstoppable at this point. It was stupid of him to do it, but it was, in the end, the destruction of one city. It was a very important city, but it was the destruction of one city. And the end of the the, the Abbasid Caliphate. 
which already declined pretty significantly by this point. Sykes and Picot literally just drew random lines on a map. From the Ianacher to last K and Kirkuk. That's literally what it was. Just to divide the Middle East between them. Especially after uh, the Arabs had already been promised a state by this point. Yeah. And the drawing of these random borders, forcing a bunch of these groups of people together who hadn't really cooperated before, like Iraq, forcing the Kurds and Shia and Shiite Muslims together, all in one country, leads to instability. Lebanon has not been stable for over 60 years. Syria is still going through a civil war that's been going on for over a decade. The whole Israel-Palestine thing, that's been a conflict for a century. Uh, <coughs> so, again, it's kind of like our, um, from our first year, our Louis Mountbatten episode, drawing lines on a map without really any real consideration other than, well, we, we want uh, to split this up halvesies. It, it's just, it's devastating. And we are still feeling the effects to this day. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm going to have to go with Sykes and Picot for this one. So, so they um, make it in the final four. Final four. So, our next matchup to be in the championship game, so to speak. Ronald Reagan versus Richard Henry Pratt. Okay, so Reagan was the disarmament and Pratt uh, was the U.S. Army officer who founded, founded the Native American boarding schools. Um, Going to go with Reagan in this case. Hmm. Nuclear disarmament kind of is a it's a trump card. Yeah, it's it's kind of hard not to. Um, literally, could have you know, in, in one form or another save the world, which is something you'd think a mo- a former movie star would uh, be attuned to doing. <laughs> nah, I think at that point he was just like. He was just a swinging dick. You know, he was just trying to assert his tiny, meager influence anywhere he could. And mm-hmm. he did it in a big way here. You yeah. know, just like flexing, essentially. Yep. All for some magic space lasers. Yeah. He was so impressed by Star Wars. He's like, well, we got to have that. So. Uh... <laughs> nice impression. Hmm. So yeah, I'm I'm gonna have to agree with Reagan on this one as well. The other matchup to determine the championship: Louis the Sixteenth versus Sykes Picot. Oh, this one I think is tougher for me. Sykes Picot. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah, <coughs> I, mean, I mean the reasons we literally just said. Yeah, so it, it's just it's our modern conflicts that we see in the Middle East today. It led to conflicts in the Middle East for over a century. Uh, Louis, the revolution was in full swing by this point. He may have lost his throne in his head anyway. True. Um, but, I mean, his actions exacerbated it and certainly led it down that path. But yeah, Sykes-Picot, it's, it's gotta be. So our championship for year two, Sykes-Picot versus Ronald Reagan. I feel like we, 
I mean, this is the second to last episode. Do we really need to pick? Because <laughs> both of these guys are just like terrible. These no, are because the winner here will face our effort, our master effort, effort from year one. Can it not be a triumvirate? No, that's Roman history has taught us triumvirates don't last well. They they, they don't age well. Well, they only have to age one episode, Cody, because we only have one more episode. So. Reagan gave up a chance for total disarmament. But let's say Reagan says, okay, I'm done. I, I Let's do nuclear disarmament. Let's say Reagan says, let's do it. But everything else in history remains the same. Like, we still get a Putin. It doesn't matter what Gorbachev signed there's going to be nuclear arms at that point. I don't think that it's one thing to think that a, excuse me, a destruction of like a mutual nuclear disarmament would have gone perfectly. And that Gorbachev would have, you know, kept to his word and that Reagan would have kept to his word and that the rest of the world also would have kept their word and not like bought these up under the table or, um, terrorist group gets a hold of them. Terrorist group gets a hold of them. Another country has parallel development and they end up getting a hold of some, um, and, and a void is created because these two superpowers don't have them anymore. So these littler countries end up like actually stocking up. Now that's all, conjecture i mean that could have happened but the destabilization of the middle east is actually happening and has been happening for a hundred years so while sykes picot weren't the you know engineers of the situation they certainly threw a grenade onto it um so i'm gonna say sykes picot for that reason i am going to say that I think that what they've done and what continues to happen in the Middle East is worse than Reagan having nuclear weapons or, or passing up the chance to potentially not have nuclear weapons. And because the other thing is Reagan, you know, says, okay, let's, let's disarm. What about the next president? In, in a few short years and on, in th- only three and a half years after that, yeah. you know, that's and the, the timeline was 10 years. And, you know, we don't know how that would have swayed the presidency one way or the other. So so that's what I'm thinking, because the 80s were that weird time in America where we were still like American supremacy. We're the best. We're the best. And maybe Reagan getting rid or saying, like, OK, let's not have nuclear weapons anymore. The American voters could have been like what we don't have any nuclear weapons get those nukes back you know like we need to be strong again we need to protect ourselves so bill clinton rides into office i'm like we're gonna bring back all the nuclear arms yeah exactly we're gonna be a strong superpower again or whatever and, and i know that that's nukes all conjecture boobs. did you say boobs yes oh my god it's clinton jesus christ <laughs> anyways so while, yes, Reagan did pass up this opportunity, 
There have not been any nuclear weapons deployed since that time, even though we all still have them. Knock on wood. Knock on wood. There are, <coughs> there is a decreasing amount of nuclear weapons in the world, which is good. And overall, yes, certainly less than there were during that time oh, yeah, in yeah. the 80s. Yeah. Um, and Sykes and Pico, they're, we, we're literally seeing the effects of what they did, even though it's 100 years later. We're literally seeing those trickle-down effects still happening and have happened all throughout our lifetime. So I'm going to say, I know, I know I said trickle-down, whatever. Yeah, I, I, saying it, uh, uh, I opposing know. Ronald Reagan, <laughs> of all people. I know. I'm going to say Sykes Pico. That's my argument. I already said my pick, Ron Reagan. All right, so we got to flip the coin. Well, I, I, don't, I don't get a chance to explain? No. Jeez. Oh, well, okay then. Fine. <laughs> no, go ahead. So Reagan had the chance for peace. And he knew it. He was went into this summit. He was not expecting Gorbachev to put all his cards on the table and be like, hey, how about this thing? And Reagan choked in the moment. Even if he says, like, okay, yes to nuclear disarmament, yeah, it would take a long time to do. Somebody else may come in and, and reverse it. But if you get, like, the American people on side, the American people have been living under this threat of nuclear war for decades at this point. Like, how, like, it's hammered home, like, I mean, we've all seen, like, at least Americans, we've seen, like, the old footage of, like, you know, duck and cover, the, the school drills he'd have to do back in the day. I went to high school. I mean, I don't know uh, what Wayne was like at the time. I went to high school in a building that was built in this time. The walls are like are like like a foot thick because the risk because to protect the students from a potential nuclear bomb. And this is in you know little sleepy Vandalia, Ohio. That's how prevalent the fear of nuclear war was. In the American culture, like the high, like the highest rated, like the highest or the most seen TV movie at the time was the day after, because everybody was just like, you know, what happens if the bomb falls? You know, it, it, it pervaded American culture and American society for decades. And the chance, and, and Reagan knew this. He lived through this. The chance, just the chance. To not have that anymore. He passed it up. Even even, even if, like, in the moment, it's like, this may not work. We may not get rid of all of them. What harm could it do to just say yes? The theoretical harm of nuclear war that has not come to fruition as of yet, to me, is lesser than the actual harm of bodies being bombed and regimes being overthrown and governments being destabilized and the millions of people who have died in the Middle East because of Sykes-Picot. So that's, I I understand like the fear was real in America. The fear is still real in America for nuclear America around the world. Right. For nuclear, for nuclear, like, you know, Soviet citizens had the same fears. Sure. But that hasn't happened. But the effects that we're seeing in the Middle East from Sykes-Picot are happening. Bodies have actually been broken and killed based off of their... So, 
Reagan is a bad guy and nuclear disarmament is obviously what we want to go for, but that didn't happen and it hasn't happened even though Reagan fumbled on at the one yard line. Sykes-Picot has actually caused people to die and countries to go to war with one another and people to be displaced and refugees to happen that didn't happen with Reagan. So that's, that's my argument. I really hate Reagan though. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I just like, of all the, fi- like if I could pick three figures from American history to just have before me and run them over with a car, it'd be Ronald Reagan, Robert E. Lee, and I, I, I don't know. Somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> I will go with Sykes and Picot. <laughs> Not necessarily because... I'll, I'll put it this way. I don't feel as strongly about... Like, I still think Reagan should win. Anyways, you said that you yeah. think Ronald Reagan should win. I think he should win. I am not entirely opposed to Sykes and Picot winning. I do not feel as strongly in favor of Reagan as you do about Sykes and Picot. And I am not as opposed to them winning as you are to Reagan winning over them. I mean, I think that Reagan's still a, a runner-up for upper is still a colossal piece of shit. Yeah. So I mean, we could we could have a uh, you know a three v four match to determine third place overall. Three v four, Lord. I don't remember who I don't remember who law who was the runner-up last time. I know the winner was Emperor Maurice. I don't. Remember. I'd have to look. So yeah, I'll, I will go. I will agree for the sake of podcast unity. <laughs> you don't have to. We can put this to a coin toss. I have no problem with that. I made my I made my impassioned yeah. argument. If you want to throw this to a coin toss, no, we'll no. we'll let we'll let chance decide. No, no, we'll we'll, we'll keep it. we'll keep it. Sykes and Picot. the F rapper for year two, the master F rapper for year two, master F rapper, uh, a joint title. Held by Mark Sykes and Francois Georges Picot. Dang. And so next episode, the final episode, where Sykes and Picot will face our Emperor year one Maurice. Upper, Emperor Maurice for our ultimate supreme mega ultra F Upper. Upper. So definitely and- yeah, yeah, and we may we may decide who is in third place as well. Maybe, yeah, who, if we who can gets find the it. bronze? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, and yeah, maybe we'll all you know after we'll maybe we'll just just discuss you know some stuff we learned along the way, some stuff that uh, kind of stuck out to us, uh, some of the stories you know we uh, we learned and liked along the way. So, all right. Please be sure to check out our other projects, including Attack of the Final Girls, a horror movie podcast with my lovely co-host, Juliet. Imperfect Men, yet another Rexypod writing all the Founding Fathers from Andrew Adams to George Wythe. The Drunken Pawn, a YouTube channel where we play board games and drink craft beer. Hard Ticket to Sedaris, a movie podcast covering the action films of the late Andy Sedaris. For all of our projects, visit our Twitter at AOP Pod Network. I'm Teresa. And I'm Cody. And this is We, we Effed Up. up.